Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Can I help who's next? Hi, welcome to CBS. Well, I have these metal claws that spring out of my hands. What, can you speak up? <coughs> I have metal claws that spring out of my hands. And <coughs> <coughs> I, I wondered if there was some kind of special cream because I have a lot of soreness. That's in mutant personal care. Do you see that sign over there, aisle seven? Between vitamins and laxatives. Can I help who's next? <coughs> wait, uh, wait, I also need to ask <coughs> about... What's up with that cough, hon? I have fatal adamantium poisoning from... Uh, hold on. Clean up. I have a dead alcoholic mutant at the front registers. Uh, I'm, I'm not dead. They're very slow about getting here. Um, can I use these coupons for the hand cream? Dude, they're covered in blood. Well, I had to kill five guys who were stealing my tires. This one is only for air fresheners, and that $5 extra bucks reward expired. <sighs> if you think you're the first mutant with superhuman strength and retractable claws to come in here and growl at me this week, let me remind you, this is a CVS. Can I help who's next? You in the red and purple costume? You better not be buying more magnets. What is it with you and magnets? Do you guys mind if I put my show on? I love this show. And now, he thinks Trump care would have passed if Professor Xavier had gotten behind it. Colin McEnroe. All right, yes. So we are talking today about, well, actually, let me introduce uh, the people on the news, and then we'll t I'll tell you what we're talking about. So Rebecca Castellani, a scholar of modern literature and also a music impresario in the Montmartre-like district of Collinsville, uh, and uh, James Hanley, co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College, where I expect to wind up uh, this weekend for silence. Uh, Sam Hatch co-hosts The Culture Dogs on Sunday nights at WWUH at 8 p.m.? 8 p.m., right? 8 p.m., yeah. 8 p.m. Sunday nights. W I you, can, you have permission to not listen to something on <laughs> WNPR at 8 p.m. on Sunday nights. Um, all right, so we're, uh, a little bit later in the show, we're going to talk about well, we're going to talk about binging, but specifically how an auteur, a television auteur, uh, is asking critics in particular not to binge, telling them bad, bad to binge. Uh, if time, we're going to talk about uh, Beauty and the Beast's exclusively gay moment, um, which actually sounds like kind of a, you know, a, a Howard Ashman and Alan Menken song, but it's not. Uh, and, uh, well, anyway, well, we're going to begin with Logan. Logan is... Um, uh, a superhero movie, although it doesn't look anything like a superhero movie. There's nobody in, in, in any costumes. Um, it's also unbelievably <laughs> melancholy. <laughs> and But but it's also a, a Western, uh, and a Western that very specifically uh, invokes Shane. Um, and none of that is really, Rebecca, particularly adequate. I mean, we all, I think, really like this movie a lot, but it's hard to explain why and what it is. Yeah, it is hard to explain why and what it is, especially because when you use the word superhero movie, everybody has this Avengers flash before their eyes, Spider-Man love triangle thing, and this movie could not have been farther from that. It was bleak. It was violent. It was dark. I mean, it really, really was unlike any other Marvel movie, Avengers movie, X-Men movie I've ever seen. And that being said, I loved it for it. It was like the bomb to all of the hyped-up patriotism of Civil War, which was the last Avengers movie I saw. I never saw Apocalypse, so I heard it was terrible. 
I just watched Apocalypse. I'm in this minority that thinks Apocalypse isn't really all that bad. Uh, well, anyway, but that's a separate topic. <laughs> I don't know. James, to me, one of the measures of a movie, particularly a movie like this that is so melancholic, is does it stay with you? You know, And this one did. I was still, the next day, very much having some of the feelings that were up there on the screen. Yeah, I, I agree. It's uh, I, It was kind of unexpected to me. I mean, I was looking forward to seeing it, but I didn't expect it to have that kind of effect. It was almost like seeing a... Um, I don't know, a, a, a sort of film, the kind of film that I would have seen in the 60s or 70s that, that stuck with me for years because it really addressed all sorts of issues, including the sort of technical nature of finally sort of ending a franchise on its current course yeah. with actually dealing with characters mm -hmm. and actually developing character in a way that was really interesting. That um, it and, and it also had to me a look about it that was not drenched in CGI work. Yeah. It yeah. almost seemed like it had been filmed on film. I, obviously, there had to have been CGI, but it was done in a way that the film was just like sort of like almost the frustrations of everyday life of getting around and yeah. and making a car work and like trying to drive through a fence and, yeah. and things like that. It had that sort of gritty sort of reality. But the, the thing that really stuck with me were the characters. I mean, I, I just I, I kept on thinking of the development of the characters, not only what you had expected of them in the past, but then introducing this young girl who's like, I mean, she is absolutely phenomenal, mm -hmm. uh, who sort of takes over the movie at several points. Who and non-verbally for three quarters of the film, right. which exactly. was add to the impression for me. I mean, yeah. incredible. Yeah, Sam, we don't want to do too many spoilers, but we can tell you that very early on, <laughs> uh, Wolverine joins forces. Logan, whatever we're going to call him, James, uh, joins forces with um, a very young girl who's been held in some kind of research facility. It seems to be the fate of mutants, including Logan himself, to be held in research facilities, and uh, who is on the lam, um, and who has powers uh, suspiciously similar uh, to Logan's. So, you know, I love what James just said, though, because yeah. I hadn't thought about that, but there are moments where Logan is in one of his growling rages, but it's about, like, a, a car with ignition <laughs> problems. <laughs> and that's that's one of the things that this movie gets to explore fully. And, and then one of the problems with the comics is that, you know, Wolverine was always this dirty, hairy-esque Clint Eastwood character thrown into the mix with the X-Men. And, and he had these kind of bottled rages, these berserker rages, they called them. Uh, but they never were able to fully explore the actual, you know, the viscera and, and the potential damage that those rages could cause. And yeah, so what if you have a guy that, that has all this bottled up, pent up frustration and anger and has these lethal claws on his hands and uh, and yeah, he takes out all sorts of gang members and just anybody in his way. And it's uh, the stakes are a lot higher in this film because it's not him versus a guy like Sabretooth, Liv Schreiber's character in previous films where they're just big super guys that can... Yeah shred each other to pieces and then just kind of walk away from it. So No, for the most uh, part, they're taking on, I mean, they have some enemies, but they're really taking on mortality, yeah. exactly. age, yeah. you know, yeah. things yeah. that we're all taking on. And I think that's one Absolutely. of those sort of ways in which the, this movie locates itself with us as opposed to apart from us. And Sam, I also wanted to quickly follow this up by saying one thing this movie does that I know has been done in the past. I can go back to Buckaroo Banzai uh, and, yes. and to uh, Justin Law's character in Galaxy Quest and Sam being who you are, you are now mentally assembling 18 other examples of this. <laughs> but um, 
But it, it so uh, there is this notion that there are X Men comic books that can be read in addition to actual uh, real X Men running around, and that 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 informs people's thinking about the X Men. Uh, and I don't think I'd seen that before in any X Men movie that there were kids reading X Men comic books and learning things about them. Yeah, that's been worked into other you know, superhero movie adaptations, and that they were they were thinking about that and. In uh, early versions of the Watchmen, uh, and but it, yeah, Marvel never really got that postmodern about things before. And which yeah, the X Men comics were a, a real thing, and it really had me flashing back to films like Unforgiven, where there were people writing these you know, dime store tales of gunslingers, and that that there was this kind of public awareness of real life gunslingers out there, but that everything was blown out of proportion and embellished along the way. Uh, and I love that whole concept in here that there's this, you know, Eden-esque, you know, uh, yeah, land where you can go and be free. And, and it's it's in an actual comic book. So that's thrown into the mix as to whether or not it, it really exists or not, or if it's something a character found from a fiction within this fiction. Let's hear a little clip from the movie. Um, this clip features, you will be entertained to know, Eric LaSalle of Hartford, from Hartford originally, but also of ER fame. And we haven't seen Eric for a while. I could set it up for you. It's actually a clip that could have appeared in five other places in the movie because it does have a little bit of this, you know, people not really quite getting who they're dealing with, with Wolverine. In this case, though, Logan has decided to assist Eric LaSalle, who's kind of trying to keep his uh, family homestead together against some ruthless agribusiness people. And so uh, the ruthless agribusiness people show up while uh, well, Eric LaSalle's character and Logan are trying to get the water pump started. Aiden, Mr. Monson. You understand you're trespassing right now, right? I have an easement with the previous owner of your property. <laughs> previous being the operative word. Who's this? Just a guy telling you to get back in your nice truck and go play okie dickhead somewhere else. Hey, Carl. It looks like Mr. Monson hired some muscle. Looks that way. He's a friend of mine. Friend with a big mouth. I hear that a lot. And you probably hear this, too. More than I'd like. And you know the drill. I'm gonna count to three. And you're gonna start walking away. Yeah, right to this one. One. I have a lawyer now. Two. Three. Ah, ah. Yeah, boss. <clears throat> you know the drill. Get the hell out of here. All right. Yes, you know the drill. So, James, um, this movie is very intentional and obvious about evoking Shane. It's a movie that the characters actually watch. I think you hear a little bit uh, of Shane maybe ev- even in that scene. I don't know. How did, how did that work for you? There's always a risk, right, when you, in, in a contemporary movie, invoke a classic. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's enough to get Sam Hatch to run home and put the Shane laser uh, <laughs> I watched in, it, yeah. yeah right away. <laughs> but, um, but there's a risk, right, because this isn't Shane. Yes, actually, it, we were talking a little bit about it before when we were together. That um, it's really interesting to me that when I talk to people, I see these things and I think, oh, you know, wow, that's really neat, uh, and and I'm making those connections. I'm, you know, sort of feeling this sense that okay, I'm I'm seeing where it's going, but it's astonishing, of course, that how few people actually know Shane or have seen it and uh, understand the reference. And I think one of the uh, things that is interesting 
<clears throat> in Logan is that the clip of Shane is actually not just something in the background. It's actually focused on, and it mm -hmm. actually you're looking at a seminal scene of it that holds on for longer than I would have expected. Enough that even if you hadn't seen the film, you'd get sort of the flavor of, of, of exactly what he was trying to get across. Um, it is a dangerous thing, but I'm also a fan of uh, all these things that sort of pop up in the background of movies that are referential that you know that 90% of the audience watching probably won't see. But they're things that people do discover over time, and it makes for interesting conversation if you're the person, you know, the total movie geek or somebody like me who spends his life in the dark <laughs> watching <laughs> these things that over the years, you know, that, that you suddenly make these references and it's sort of like a kind of uh, reassurance in a way of what the filmmaker is trying to get across. And I think it fits in with the whole tone of the movie, too. It's not just the reference to Shane and its story but also it has a reference technically, the, the, the filmic quality, if you like, yeah. the, the physical film quality, mm. the, even though it's being shown on an electronic screen, it has a look of film to it. And I, I connect that right up to the title sequence of, of Logan, which looks like an old style title sequence sure. that's yeah. been mm. done with press type, you know, that has not been done through some elaborate electronic creation. And so it fits right in with that. And I think that a lot of people will be curious now, actually, because that film, I mean, a lot of people have seen Logan and, and, and Shane is significant enough that I think some people will have gone to see the film yeah. and actually gotten it out. Could be a good move for us in the studio. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> File that away. So, yes. you know, it's a Western, Rebecca, but I mean, it has all this other underpinning to it, a kind of existentialism that, that maybe isn't in Shane, you know, and, and in particular... Um, I think a lot of us saw it. David Edelstein saw it. You noticed it. At the beginning, one of the things that we're told, without a lot of details, but it seems as though there might not be any more ex-people, at least adult ex-people, left. Maybe something really bad has happened. Uh, and and what you see is the tail end of it in this rather dusty uh, and, and stark place just south of the border. And, and what's left is Professor X, who has dementia, uh, Logan, who is coughing, and uh, you know, superheroes just don't cough. Uh, it's a bad sign if a superhero coughs. There's something terribly wrong with him. And then, la lastly, Stephen Merchant, of all people, yes. <laughs> who's a British comedian and associate of Ricky Gervais, uh, playing this kind of woebegone, uh, albino, sun-shunning uh, mutant named Caliban. Um, and and. A lot of people saw a, maybe a little end-of-the-world Beckett stuff there. Yeah, I definitely got yeah. major Endgame vibes from Stephen Merchant's Caliban. Uh, just the, the way the whole thing was filmed reminded me of a staging of Waiting for Godot I saw with uh, McKellen and Patrick Stewart. Mm. And I definitely believe Stewart's performance, you, he drew on some of that doddering, apocalyptic vibe. Uh, he also was giving me major Lear on the Heath vibes in the beginning as well. So that was another takeaway I had from the movie was how literary it felt. I mean, you really... Mm could have felt like you were reading it in many respects. It was very meta and self-aware about its genre. We, you know, as James was saying as well, we had the that movie in with a movie kind of play within a play trope. So I think that it played on a lot of classic literary elements to kind of elevate it from beyond a typical superhero movie into this sort of, you know, it's got a classic film element to it that it's, was completely transcendent in my mind from any other traditional superhero movie I've seen. The only superhero movie I can say that played with its own genre that much was Deadpool, and that was done to a completely different end. Yeah. Did anybody see, I, I, I had the experience of watching, watch, watch, getting there in time to see 
Well, 26 minutes of trailers, if you want to get specific about it. Oh, but, the Deadpool but, trailers? Yeah, the yeah, Deadpool Deadpool trailer. Trailer. there are, there are some, yeah. some R-rated trailers that are pinned, right, to this. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how that's much right. that's been happening, Sam, but, um, but so yeah. there are R-rated trailers that discuss and undertake subjects that trailers generally do not. Uh, and uh, there's a very funny Deadpool trailer that even references Logan. And, Absolutely, yeah. Um, ties right into it. Yeah. I love all this meta self-awareness these movies are getting now. <laughs> oh, it's yeah. great. It was like in that moment in Civil War when you get the new Spider-Man, he's geeking out about being around all these superheroes. It yeah. just makes it so much more watchable when you have a voice that's speaking for the audience in the film. I, 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 I hope it, they do more of that. For sure. Yeah, I agree. And I think it also bodes well for uh, sort of that kind of independence of spirit that allows that to yes. come through the commercial commercial grinder, you know, that, yes. that, that the 20th century Fox people evidently had a kind of hands off, I would say, because I'm sure that had they had a conference about that yeah. and, uh, and about that trailer, too, the, the the Deadpool trailer, they'd probably, you know, like be iffy about it, you know, yeah. they wouldn't do it. But the connection with the film and the, the film itself has that feeling of sort of artists at work with incredible performances, the literary references, yeah. the extraordinary writing. I mean, all the of it. The writing was perfect. And the yeah. film, we, we talked about this downstairs, yeah. the cinematography was perfect. Yeah, yeah John yeah. Matheson, uh, he's yeah. shut a lot for Ridley Scott, and he was the DP yeah. on this. And he really is the, you know, along with the, the character work, is the kind of secret star of the show. Yes. Uh, the film Absolutely. is just beautiful and gorgeous. And he used, uh, now that everything's digital, you can go ahead and just shoot and just cut away whatever you need from the, the, the actual image to create a widescreen you know, frame. But now he actually went and used 1980s era yeah. Panavision yeah. You know, widescreen glasses. So it's got a, a real you know, kind of throwback cinema look to it. It is. Uh, James Mangold's the director who's had kind of a curious career, but it included 310 to Yuma, the remake of, of mm. that. And I yes. saw, I mean, obviously he has mastered a lot of these Western tropes yeah. uh, as a result and, and really does yeah. look and feel very much like a Western. So, Sam, yeah. I, w I don't want to say hashtag, hashtag X-Men so white, but um, one of the things that uh, this movie sets up is the possibility that a whole bunch of little mutants, um, young people, many of them people of color, uh, are are on their way maybe to becoming a new generation uh, of X-Men. And I know in the comic books there have been new mutants and all this kind of stuff, yeah, but yeah. These, I assume, and you often know the gossip ahead of time, <laughs> um, I mean, are, the, are these kids that we're seeing there, are they destined to get their own franchise? I'd imagine so, but on one hand, it's it's kind of interesting because the the whole kind of Shane-esque tactic is, is to kind of usher out the old era, the the era yeah. of the gunslingers, the era of the mutants that get involved in these kind of shenanigans. So it's kind of counterproductive to then usher them into this new world and, and when they, you know, leave the land and go somewhere else and they can just live peaceful, ordinary lives theoretically. So it seems almost a shame to drag them out <laughs> of that potentially peaceful future just to cash in on on the new mutants and give them some shenanigans to do. No, so I think not, it's inevitable. Not to spoil too much, we don't get that yeah. that comforting, okay, they're okay, they're going to be, mm. it's, it is yeah. left open-ended. There is that potential for I, more trouble ahead. Yeah, <laughs> right. And Rebecca, I, I also feel like there's kind of this sense of the young and the old, each facing their own problems. Yeah. The, these kids don't really know how to use their powers to defend themselves against, you know, relatively punier adversaries for the most part. Um, but they haven't been trained. They don't know how to get into formation. Or they're impulsive. Like that. Yeah. They're emotional. I mean, part of what's so funny in, throughout the movie is Wolverine disciplining a young child. And Wolverine, mm -hmm. one of the most undisciplined <laughs> X-Men, is suddenly in this paternal <laughs> role. He's like, oh, dear, I really have to keep this kid in line. So they are regular kids, you know, for the most part. And the way that the young lady who played Lara, the 
main character. She just played that perfectly. And for three quarters of the movie, she doesn't speak. Mm-hmm. But that that young pre-adolescent angst and that, you know, coming up against an authority figure that you don't really know very well and he's trying to boss you around, she played that perfectly. So I, it, it was real. I mean, you definitely, yeah. and I think the whole movie had that, that hyper-realism, that hyper-depressive, you know, middle America wasteland kind of thing. And the kids, that, that youthful angst, I thought was kind of both comic relief and a reminder that these are still young children that we're dealing with, not these overblown superhero mu- mutants. Like right. the teenage mutants are often kind of painted as not super realistic teenagers. Yeah. But James, I, James the, another th- point that Rebecca made that I thought was a great point is, so you've got that, but then you've got these two older guys. You've got, you know, Wolverine, who actually was born in the 19th century. Or something, so <laughs> he's really like a lot older, you know. And then you've got Professor X, who, you know, for most of the franchise has been kind of the guy who has an overarching understanding of what's happening. Uh, he's the master of the game that's being played. He reigns in some of the follies of his young protégés. He's not that guy anymore. He has dementia. He is, as yeah. Rebecca said, Lear on the Heath. Uh, and, and Logan uh, is no longer you know, fully equipped to be the ferocious killing machine that he's been in the past. And, and I think, Rebecca, you really flagged a great moment early on when this thing that looks like a kind of layup for an action movie, yeah. driving a car through a fence, it just doesn't work. And you sort of get the feeling, oh, like a lot of their stuff is not going to work. This is kind of a movie about getting a little older. And you know, like you're the Fisher your... King, the impotent Fisher King. Yeah. Like it. Yeah, and I, I, I think um, uh, that Patrick Stewart took that uh, that character in an extraordinary complex direction as being somebody fading but also incredibly engaged, Ugh. and and you know mm-hmm. he's in the wheelchair that they they, they like you know dealing with all kinds of physical issues and his connection with the other characters is is challenged yet he's he's incredibly a focus of that film right throughout his eyes are alive where wolverines yes. are always deadened a little yeah, bit yeah exactly yeah. And, and and it's a fascinating relationship that they have um, and the other thing uh, i think is amazing about lara's character is that she is really as uh, without speaking yeah. as you pointed yeah. out rebecca is that for all of that time you get the feeling that she's picking up what's going on oh. Oh, and she's learning and growing from it and she's becoming a different character in front of your eyes all without speaking for so long which is really amazing i mean it's such a and without making a dramatic about face it's very exactly, subtle exactly exactly and and for a, a person of that age to be doing that and the director and writer you know giving that character that space to do that that it's Incredible. one of the greatest things yeah. about the movie. I yeah, think. hers is just standing silently with sunglasses oh. on, staring yeah. down uh, like a gas station attendant. Right. It's, it's <laughs> exactly. intense. Yes. Yeah. All right, so the movie's Logan. We don't want to spoil anything for you. We should tell you that you have to prepare yourself for uh, yeah. Professor X actually having to use a gas station uh, men's room. Uh, Fifteen minute like, sequence. Yeah, it's I, like I, a I whole thing where we that. like, you know, I sort of didn't ever really want to deal with <laughs> I that particular that. reality. I loved it too. But it was, this yeah, is real. It was. It got very down to earth. The realest Marvel X Men movie you will ever see. Right. So anyway, we're going to take a little break. Uh, we're going to come back. We're going to talk about other things. Oh, where have you been? My sweet Wolverine. My sweet Wolverine. 
All right. We are indeed back with the news. And the news today consists of Rebecca Castellani, James Hanley, and Sam Hatch. Um, we're going to – well, let me put it this way. Let me dichotomize it. I mean, you can be the kind of person who cares about the maintenance of civilization, in which case you'll go to James's facility, Trinity Cine Studio, where a curtain actually parts before you watch a movie. Uh, you watch the entire movie. You watch it all the way through. You watch the credits. You listen to the music that's playing with the credits. And then the lights come up and you get up and you leave. All right. That's that's the way God intended movies to be. Or you can be like one of the younger people, you know, the younger people these days. Uh, and what they do is they sit in their, uh, you know, entertainment centers and they stream things uh, on Netflix and they just watch like whatever they want to watch and they don't stop. And Well, anyway, uh, that's I don't know what that voice is, but um, <laughs> that's sort of what we're going to be exploring here. We'll start with Damon, Damon Lindelof. Damon Lindelof is the creator of a lot of stuff, including Lost, probably most famously, um, a less cherished or uh, more of an ugly duckling, although I happen to be very fond of this series uh, uh, of his called The Leftovers, is going into its final season. He sent out, or he and his you know company sent out, um, screeners for the critics. And he sent seven episodes of screeners. But he also sent this rather finger-wagging note. Uh, welcome to the third and final season of The Leftovers. On behalf of our entire team, I just wanted to say one thing before you embark on your journey, Damon says. Binging is bad. I am old school, and not just because I agree with Joss Whedon about everything. Never before in the history of the English language has binge been associated with something healthy or productive. Just because there is an entire can of Pringles in front of you does not mean you should eat them all in one sitting, uh, and on and on. So, Sam, this feels a little bit like King Canute trying to command the tide, right? You can <laughs> yeah. sit there and do that, but you know how much of a chance do you really have uh, um, but maybe the better better question is, does he have any kind of point? I mean, is there a good reason not to binge? Yeah, I've, I've binged plenty of shows. I'm not a Netflixian. I'm an Amazon Primean, but we are of similar you know, spirit and have <laughs> similar shows. And oftentimes, yeah, we'll, we'll tear through. I recently did uh, a marathon of Fortitude, an interesting show with um, – uh, Stanley Tucci, and it's set in the, the upper, upper, upper reaches of Norway, and very, very demented kind of stuff, you know, mixed with you know, X-Files vibe with classic detective stuff. Um, but yeah, after a certain point, maybe about four or five hours in, there's this kind of drop-off where you, know, you, you definitely have to, to eat eventually or else you'll have some sort of uh, you know, problem with you know, maintaining your, uh, your healthy blood sugar, et cetera. But there's this, this drop off of returns and, and you just keep powering through even though you start to feel not so great about it. And, and you just it's just almost reflexive at that point. Like you're just pushing the button to get another snack and it, it kind of, yeah, it creeps closer to addiction. Uh, but then on the, other, on the flip side, if you're asking somebody to review a show, you have problems like the new show Iron Fist in which everyone who sees the first couple episodes hates it. And then the people that have powered through to the ending have said it really turns around and redeems itself. Uh, so if you're asking somebody to review your show, you, know, you can't really tell them not to tear through all seven episodes. And then you might end up uh, shooting yourself in the foot if it's one of those cases where they just you know, heed your warning and watch episode one and two and then they wind up uh, trashing it. Well, James, in you, we have the perfect counterpoint, really, because one of the things that you've kind of sworn yourself to do is to emphasize the structural integrity of a film. You know, yeah. that it has a beginning and an end um, and that – well, I, why should I speak for you? You well, speak for I, yourself. I, I do feel that way. I mean the, the whole sort of framed nature of going to watch a film 
let's say, uh, you know, two or three hours, whatever it is, and you're going into a space that's specifically for it. You're going to be sitting in the dark with other people. You probably don't know most of them, but there may be some friends. And then uh, our particular thing at Sony Studio is to have a curtain uh, because I learned from an MGM uh, person way back when I first started as a teenager about the idea MGM had that you should never see a blank screen, that the curtain should open and then the film starts and it's kind of a journey. And for me, you know, being steeped in that culture from the beginning, I I really anticipate with great excitement sort of the, the coming into the theater and experiencing it like that. And at the same time, I'm realistic enough to know, you know, that people see movies different ways. And I've walked past um, a uh, viewing booth at Trinity where somebody's watching um, Citizen Kane at double speed. And, you know, I, I sort of part of me wants to rip open the door and say, don't. Wait a minute. There's a part of you that doesn't want to do that. <laughs> what part well. is that? <laughs> I just have to keep under control, I guess. But I, I <laughs> like Wolverine. You know, the, these things. Um, you know, to me, there's a great drive behind this, of course, which is the cost of transmitting content. And so, it's not going to be long before the telephone companies and Netflix and these people offer a lower price if you're willing to take a lower definition and to stream it at higher speed. Uh, meaning that you you watch, you do your binge watching instead of say eight hours, you do four hours, and um, I'm, I've no doubt that some people will go for that. It, it gets to the, the the crux of it to me is whether you're consuming stuff so that you can. I mean, if you're a critic, obviously you have to consume it. I mean, you uh, the point you made, Sam, is obviously true that it, you you don't want to get trapped mm -hmm. with not knowing some de important detail. But in terms of um, uh, turning, uh, you know, like a, especially a long series of, say, 10 episodes into something you consume as a, as, as a viewer, I think that to me it takes it to a different place. Part of it is my background, I suppose. But um, I certainly find if I try and watch more than a couple of episodes like that in that sequence, I find myself fidgety and wanting to get away from it. And then I sort of reset myself and maybe come back the next day, and that's m my approach. See, Rebecca, now I have stuck in my head the idea of like watching Narcos in three acts or something. <laughs> Want to buy some drugs? Yes, I got, I got, I'll grow some drugs. This is coming. We have some drugs. Um, but um, I, you know, to me, one of the things that ha it's happening—I don't know if it's happening to you—but what's happening to me is instead of watching something with a beginning and middle and end, I sort of watch something until I get tired or. Yeah hungry or cold or I have a bladder infection, whatever. In other words, you know, I mean, yeah. it's like I, I started to watch, because we were going to talk about it on, on an episode of The News, Sneaky Pete, which is on mm. Amazon Prime. And I watched it until I got tired. And then mm. I stopped. You know? <laughs> I didn't watch it to the end. I watched it until I got tired. And yeah, to me, that's I, a different kind of engagement with art. I never start off saying, ooh, Friday night, I'm going to binge some television right now. It never starts that way. And I never necessarily... I don't think I've ever really enjoyed a real true binge watching session, but you get to that point where it's suddenly kind of unconscious and you're sitting on the couch and you look at your watch and four yeah. hours have passed. And you're like, one more. And Netflix doesn't help you because it just keeps going right. episode to That's episode. Yeah, we have to yeah. talk so about that. You don't really get a thing, choice, right? yeah. but yeah. then or, when you get you to have the to make point... An you have to make an affirmative choice to stop it, right? Unless like, it comes up to you and says, 
are you still watching? Yeah. You've been watching for eight <laughs> hours. <laughs> are you alive? Yeah, the equivalent of holding <laughs> a mirror under your nostril. You're spy TV, yeah. right? Exactly. <laughs> so, and when you get those warning signals, if Netflix has got to warn you, that's probably the time where you should engage in some self-reflection, go for a walk around the block. But, I mean, the Lindelof's point about how binging in the history of the English language has never been a good thing. So, as someone that does fall into this trap a lot, it, you know, it's something that I think it's a reality a lot of people are contending with in this new digital age of how we watch TV. You certainly didn't have this problem when there's commercials interrupting your television experience all the time. My problem is I cliffhangers keep me up at night. Yeah. So when I used to watch Lost, when it aired every Thursday, I never slept Thursday night. I would just be up all night thinking what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So now when I have a cliffhanger at the end of Netflix, I'll just go right into the next episode and then that's how it all starts. So that's my cautionary tale. Yeah, I, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you know, it's not for nothing that the first thing, one of the first things in the Dolby Digital Standard was uh, pitch maintaining during speeded up viewing that, you know, if you run the file yeah. up to five times, you can keep the, vo the voice pitch the same. The same, yeah. Just faster. I didn't know that. That's very interesting. <laughs> and and so we also learned this week that Netflix itself is making some changes, uh, including uh, some kind of feature that allows you to skip the, the title the credit intro, sequence. Right? Yeah. yeah. Which they do actually do that already sometimes. If you watch a show itself, yeah. long enough, yeah. this is how you know I've really I've <laughs> done this too many times. It will automatically skip the credits sometimes. But I think as if you're going to watch a single episode, this button will enable you to skip even that. My so wife hates those, and she always yells at me when I when I watch you know, DVDs and Blu-rays, and I end up watching the you know the True Blood intro over and over again. Some of them are great though. Yeah, like Game of Thrones, I'll watch that every single time. And it's I, great. Mad Men. Yeah, it feeds into the addiction at some points. I we recently marathoned Downton Abbey on Amazon, and for some reason that like intro thing is like a little shot of morphine. Yeah. That it's just like imbued with the spirit of the show, and you're like, why? Well, I can't not watch the next 50 minutes because I just saw that little capsule bit of you know beautiful violins and, and imagery from the show. And, and then after just, 50 minutes, you get to watch it again. And it's just <laughs> bam, all over again, yeah. I but think that's kind of a, it, it's kind of like some, has some of the flavor of the ritual of the curtain rising in the yeah, theater. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That you're setting the stage and getting yourself in the mood. And I wouldn't want to sacrifice that for a lot of television. Most of yeah, my, you know, yeah. The Leftovers is another one. I've always enjoyed their opening credits. Yes. I, they've always change. I like title cards that evolve. I just found out that the Walking Dead title card has disintegrated over six seasons. I oh, never okay. heard that. So uh, I like where there's little Easter eggs and things like that yeah. in title cards. Well, for I, sure. I, I think also there is this kind of rewiring of us that's happening. You know, and Netflix and Amazon, they want that to happen because that's how they operate. They don't operate the way James does. So, and just the, the Verge, the publication The Verge did a piece about these new Netflix features. And then I, I was reading the comments, you know, and the comments were really kind of disturbing to me because the comments were things like, Oh, yeah, I really like that because, you know, sometimes those credits go on for like tens of seconds. <laughs> that, that, that phrase was actually used, tens of seconds. And I'm thinking, you can't, you just need everything to just elide into the next thing so so seamlessly yeah. and mushily that it's really become a problem for you that something goes on for tens of seconds that isn't exactly what you want at that moment. So well, I basically scary. get off my lawn. Yeah, and you yeah. lose a sense of the structure of the show at that point when it's just a one big long you know, unveiling of and these. The, and, and it's a slippery slope to watching two pictures at the same time, mm -hmm. and, and you know, like yeah. multiple, then then following multiple threads because you're watching. 
you're, you're trying to catch up with everything. I also think it's kind of sad for all the people that worked really hard on the television show. For sure. Their yeah. names don't yeah. get to be seen by the world because we're too lazy to take in a few minutes of At least credits. Game of Thrones is, is brilliantly smart in that <sighs> so great. each intro is is an introduction to the, the, the Where locales you're go, of that episode. Yeah. So you, well, maybe that's what we're going to have to, if you want your title cards to be watched, you just have to be as clever as Game of Thrones exactly. and then people will watch them. Well, there's another uh, there's another aspect to it, though, is that, that uh, from Netflix and Amazon's point of view, they don't especially want you to watch that stuff mm-hmm. because of the cost of transmission and oh, the, so, the, the so idea insightful. that you get uh, 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 you you are able to fit more into the pipeline as a result. They cut they cut it off in some cases. The ends yeah. the ends yeah. of things are sometimes cut off. And it's amazing. It. I've been uh, binging the Big Bang Theory recently, and the title card for that is so dense. Uh, at, at the end of it, it's just images flashing nonstop, yeah. and they're all f- incredibly detailed. And it becomes a complete mess if you watch it yeah. over the air or on cable because you can't fit that amount of information right. through the pipeline. No. Right. And this this isn't new because if you remember uh, when they started uh, running. A uh, running the credits on the end of just regular TV shows in a window. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. that they was, speed them up. Yeah, and, speed and them up, has, shrink them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it has the same economic drive behind it. Yeah. All right, so uh, things that I can see that you can't see. I have a message from the producer Jonathan McNichol. I just have to read it out loud. Should probably transition to bestiality now, um, <laughs> which is not something that I really get a Fair lot. Enough. Um, but it's, it, it, so here's here's what happened. We don't have very much time for this anyway. Um, My mom is listening too. Right, so so, <laughs> so we, we thought we were going to talk initially. Not, we, none of us have seen this, so it's kind of wrong to talk about it anyway. But uh, famously, uh, the new version of Beauty and the Beast includes a definably gay character who, you know, has this uh, exclusively gay moment. I, I don't know. This yeah. is like turned into this collect them all catchphrase. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, which I how much did they pay for that line? <laughs> yeah. It just you know, but I mean, I as we were kind of emailing around, the sense was that I got was no one cares, and, and the, this isn't really the kind of breakthrough that that would matter. Mm-hmm. But Rebecca did point us in a completely different direction, which is that there's something basically unsatisfying about the ending of almost all treatments, at least modern treatments of Beauty and the Beast. Take it away. Yeah, um, the Beast is very compelling and. In certain corners of the internet, Emma Watson included, people find the Beast attractive. Mm -hmm. So when the Beast then inevitably turns back into this prince because you spent the whole movie with the Beast and then there's suddenly this prince who nobody can ever remember his name. I don't know what his name is, and I've seen that movie a hundred times. Wasn't it Pampy? Exactly. He's got blonde hair, and he's got a uh, German nose, and that's all I could tell you about him, and he just (laughs) kind of sucks compared to the Beast. So there's been this whole conversation (laughs) as to why Disney did this to us, because now I feel like there's something profoundly wrong with me that I'm more attracted to the Beast version than the Prince version. And my world is crumbling down around me. That could so. have inspired Shrek. You know, that, I mean, that, and now we've been talking yeah. about it, though. X-Men deals with this a lot. I mean, Mystique and the Beast, I was thinking they have that whole connection. Yeah. Jean Grey and Wolverine. So I, this isn't as as taboo as I think we all initially suspected, <laughs> especially because right. Emma Watson's on board. Sure, yeah. Well, yeah, so we, we should, you should say Emma Watson. Yes, she oh. said that she found the Beast version more attractive. And then, to add insult to injury, said that she always found Aslan from the Narnia movies, attractive. Right. And that's where I lost her. Uh, Emma yeah, Watson, she of Hermione. Uh, uh, yes, of Hermione, she, and she plays Belle in the movie, yes. I've done a lot of girls that have pin-up, you know, Aslan pin-ups in their really? rooms. No, no, I never. <laughs> I just made that up. But, I mean, <laughs> I, I do think, James, you know, I said this thing that I wrote way back in 1991 about Beauty and the Beast. There are all kinds of, you know, Betelheimish uh, ideas embedded in this story. I, I don't know how powerful they are anymore. 
Yeah, I think that's true. I, I, I mean, I think there's the air of menace in some ways, but it's mystery. And also, it's the whole idea of what is ugly, really. Yeah. And and yeah. in many ways, the sort of the, the underlying sexual threat mm-hmm. of the idea of the, the beast, you know, the King Kong is, yes. is another one, you know, that, that also was a racist image, mm-hmm. you know, that, that these are very, very strong images. And you actually, you know, speaking of exclusively gay moments, I mean, the entire French version, Jean Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast, I mean, that's a, you know, an entire gay moment from start to finish <laughs> um, in every way. An exclusively and, gay moment. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and it's it's really you know you got the feeling that with this this uh, there has to have been a press release you know a talking point about the gay moment, um, which in the new one apparently is you know significant to some people. I guess uh, it, when I looked up the film for the running time, it says 134 minutes, except in China 122 minutes, so which I presume <laughs> that, that the, right the gay yep. moment was cut out. Twelve minutes. Yep. <laughs> but you know it it really is something that. Um, <clears throat> I I think it's really fascinating because it sets up this thing about stereotypes, really, and it also can veer into really nasty territory about racism, but it can also address something about what makes people attractive and what makes them not. I read a great meme a couple of days ago that said we would never, they could never have staged this movie with the beast being a female. That's and the right. male being, you exactly. know, the Stockholm exactly. syndrome captor, you would have killed yeah. her in the first act and yeah. been gone. I mean, do but, that. But that do empathy. a search on image for exactly that yep. on the internet, and there's thousands of images of exactly that. Yeah, of gender bent. Yes. Yeah. One thing that I will just say uh, about this is that um, I had, had to write this thing for the Harvard Symphony, uh, and I wound up writing, it was about Faust, and it was about, therefore, people who had succumbed to different kinds of temptations, and one of the monologues that I wrote was about somebody who had committed adultery, and I kept changing it different ways, and the director and I were talking about it, and, and then I suddenly thought, what if it were a gay man, a married gay man, and, and I wrote that character, and I thought, well, I, you know, it, it's a sort of a scary thing to do if you're straight to write a gay character, mm. although I always maintain that, you know, it's easier to write about anybody from your own socioeconomic background than it is to write about, say, a poor person. I don't think we know anything about poor people, right. you know, whereas I at least know lots of gay people from my socioeconomic background. Um, but, I mean, it, the temptation to write towards the gayness was the one thing that I fought. You know, I mean, as far as I was concerned, this was somebody who had wrecked his marriage through adultery and it didn't really make too much difference, you know. And and I think that's the problem with exclusively gay moments is if they become gay moments, what they're really kind of emphasizing is a difference as opposed to the fact that most of life is not that different. Yeah, it's not very organic at all. And it just seems like somebody was checking a box somewhere. I've got a list yeah. of things yeah. to incorporate into this film. Exclusive gay moment is you and know, list number Gad five. And Josh Gad has yeah. been, his reaction yeah. to all of this, he's in a few interviews, has been you know, pretty weak. He say, I don't want to get into anything political. You know, if you're going to yeah. get behind an exclusively He's gay been moment, yeah. by the at Disney least organization. use it yeah. as a platform. What have they done to me? Yeah. Yeah. People in China can see these interviews. Don't say anything. <laughs> right. All right, yeah. we have to take a break. We have to come back and recommend some things to you. So that's what we will do. As it can be Barely even friends Then somebody bends No fast-forwarding through the credits. Today's show is produced by McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish was our liaison to Aquaman, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Alan Cumming. 
Monday on The Scramble, why federal funding of the arts is worth fighting over. And now, back to Colin. Can I just quickly say, Alan Cumming as Nightcrawler is like the best X-Men thing ever. Like, he's just so good. Um, all right. So anyway, that's not really my recommendation. Let's do some recommendations. Rebecca Castellani, you get us started. All right. So my first recommendation for you is sort of personal. Um, I, for months and months and months, have been having, like, really chronic skin problems and gut problems, and I could not get my doctor to treat me, and just went on and on and on. So finally, though I am a Western medicine gal, I went and saw a naturopath. And it has completely changed my life. I have started tre- looking at my microbiome in a way. You know, this is a word I didn't know a year yes. ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so I highly recommend a book I read called The Microbiome Diet. It's by Raphael Kelman. It's really easy to understand. It's fascinating. You will learn. I know you guys did a show on the microbiome mm-hmm. a few months ago, and it was great. So highly recommend it. The naturopath I saw is named Dr. Dana LaPointe. She's in Simsbury. She's great. You can check her out on Facebook. She's got really informative stuff. So highly recommend my second endorsement is just a broad endorsement of Margaret Atwood. Um, mm-hmm. She's been a f- big, big fan. Of, I love her for years and years. Um, the Handmaid's Tale is coming out on Hulu next month, and if you haven't read the book, I highly recommend it. It's fantastic. I know the show's going to be great cause it's got Elizabeth Moss and Samira Wiley, who are fantastic, but watch it, uh, read it if you can before you binge watch Hulu's uh, version of The Handmaid's Tale. I also highly recommend her Oryx and Crake trilogy. See, I think Sam was about to recommend that. I thought I saw Oryx and Crake. Right down the cusp. Yeah. 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 So, um, Margaret Atwood, she's my girl. Cat's Eye is a pretty good novel. Yes. Anyway, uh, James, what do you got? Um, I just wanted to um, remind people about a wonderful place in Willimantic on Main Street, which is one of my great places to hang out. Uh, not only do we now have Cafe Mantic, but we have a, a restaurant called uh, uh, It's it's called Not Only Juice, um, and uh, the food there is amazing, uh, snacks and more substantial food, really good on Main Street in Willimantic. <clears throat> and I wanted to also mention Sydney Studio showing of the Artist's Garden, American Impressionists, on Sunday. We're having two shows of it. But I also, just one last mention for an exquisite film. It's actually played already, but if you can find it, Patterson, the Jim mm. Jarmusch film, which I thought was an absolutely uh, a quiet masterpiece, uh, absolutely wonderful. Adam Driver playing um, a bus driver poet. Um, it, it just had so many elements to it. But I just loved it. Actually, I'm really psyched up to see the Scorsese movie Silence, also at Trinity Cine Studio this weekend. Sam, what do you got? I'm going to go out on a limb here and uh, recommend a very, very interesting slash disturbing film uh, that Arrow Video recently issued. It's from I mean, Sam says something is disturbing. It's from a <laughs> Mexican uh, artist, uh, also filmmaker named Emiliano Rochaminter, and it's called We Are the Flesh, and it is a very, very uh, visually overloaded and sexually charged. You will you will see sexual acts in the film, and and so so be prepared. And it's it's about this very you know, Marquita Sad meets Charles Manson esque character living in a potentially post apocalyptic warehouse, and this uh, brother and sister uh, meet him, and he decides to build a womb with them out of pieces of furniture and <laughs> whatever you need to build a womb inside a uh, warehouse, and it gets bizarre from there. But it's gorgeous, and I, all the, the director's short films are also really, really amazing. But don't watch it with anybody, really. Just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really, it's, not like a, it's not like a family movie or something? Yeah, yeah, it sounds a, a lot like the first Benji movie. It's a little bit. Similar, yeah. And then also throw in a quick mention to my friend, uh, comedian Dan Cummins' new podcast. Normally I just listen to Hello from the Magic Tavern, but he's got a great podcast called Time Suck, where he just basically gets lost in interesting uh, ideas and, and p- 
pieces of history that people throw his way. Recently, he did one about the serial killer H.H. Holmes and things like Nigerian email scams or something. But he digs in so deep, it's really fascinating. All right. Uh, first, I'm going to go low. Chuck Barris uh, died this week. I happen to be a big fan of The Gong Show, and a lot of The Gong Show is available on YouTube, easy to find. Uh, Steve Martin is a relatively young comedian was very attracted to The Gong Show because it's Dadaist approach, and it really does have a Dadaist approach. Some of that is accidental and due to ingestion of large amounts of cocaine by everybody connected with the show, as far as I can tell. But some of it's like intentional Dadaism, and the Royal Knights of the Oingo Boingo appeared on it. And everything. Oh, I love but, them. Yeah, so I mean, The Gong <laughs> Show is sort of, it's, it's not what you think it is. And it has a real love, I think, for the fringy, marginalized kinds of people who turned up on it. I mean, they are... You know, for all the joking around and gonging and stuff like that, there's a there's an affection for them. And Barris, as the master of the games, uh, was uh, insanely wonderful in a very coked up way. Uh, so that's number one. Uh, number two, a little bit higher. Uh, I saw, I did see Assassins uh, last night, the Stephen Sondheim musical, Yale Rep. You, you, it's not going to be for everybody, but uh, if you love Sondheim anyway and you're used to some of the slightly you know, darker kinds of music that he writes, well, this is, of course, very dark. Uh, but it's beautifully produced and, uh, and directed and just, you know, the production values are great, but also just, I don't know, the blocking on some of these tightly worked out uh, little numbers that involved like bystanders who see a, an attempt on FDR's life or something. Everything has to be done perfectly, and it is. Um, Stephen DeRosa, one of the great uh, stage characters Character actors uh, of our time. Uh, if you watched Boardwalk Empire, you'll remember him as, as Eddie Cantor, uh, is uh, a marvel to behold as always. But there are just like five or six really good cast members. So go see that before it closes. And um, also in the program, you'll find something uh, calling your, the new thing that's kind of slid in there and an addendum about funding for the arts, which is really important. Uh, and uh, this thing explains everything that the NEA has accomplished in New Haven. Um, this is something we're going to try to deal with on future episodes of this show. The notion, anyway, that, uh, that uh, the arts are not – it's not kind of a second or third tier on the triage of the federal budget. It's really important. The conversations we have here uh, are connected to our own humanity and moral questioning and stuff like that. So anyway, thanks so much to this wonderful panel. Great uh, news. Thanks to Sam Hatch and James Hanley and Rebecca Castellani. We'll talk to you on Monday. Woodbury, Kitten on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah. There was a gay character in Beauty and the Beast? That's disgusting. Children need to know that real love is between a woman and a horned wolf bear buffalo.